Well, we are in Genesis chapter 39. We began the story of the life of Joseph in chapter 37. Remember, this, this is where Joseph, he had dreams. He had two dreams where <clears throat> there were the sheaves of wheat that were bowing down to his, his brothers and then his brothers and also his mom and dad. And he gets rebuked for this dream. Um, it's a dream from the Lord. And um, they don't like it. They don't like the implications of it. However, it's exactly what's going to happen. And we'll see that in some coming weeks. But this, along with favoritism that was shown towards Joseph by his father Jacob, caused his brothers to have um, hostility towards him. They actually sold him into slavery at the advice of Judah, who we talked about in our last study in chapter 38 with Tamar and that whole account, that whole saga. Um, And then now we're resuming the story in chapter 39, where he has been sold, he's made the journey down into Egypt, and he is now in the house of Potiphar. The title of the study is Faithful in Affliction. We'll begin at verse 1, and that's our first point, is Faithful in Affliction. Now Joseph had been taken down to Egypt, and Potiphar, an officer of Pharaoh, captain of the guard, an Egyptian, bought him from the Ishmaelites who had taken him down there. The Lord was with Joseph, and he was a successful man, and he was in the house of his master, the Egyptian. And his master saw that the Lord was with him, and that the Lord made all he did prosper in his hand. So Joseph found favor in his sight and served him. Then he made him the overseer of his house, and all that he had he put under his authority. So it was, from the time that he had made him him overseer, of his house and all that he had, that the Lord blessed the Egyptian's house for Joseph's sake. And the blessing of the Lord was on all that he had in the house and in the field. Thus he left all that he had in Joseph's hand, and he did not know what he had except for the bread which he ate. Now Joseph was handsome in form and appearance, and that's going to lead us into our next point in just a moment. But faithful in affliction sold by his brother for 20 pieces of silver, journeyed down to Egypt. You can, you can imagine that wasn't a pleasant first-class journey down to Egypt. He is now a slave. They don't want to harm him too much because that's going to hurt the return on their investment. But you can't imagine that it was a kind trip. You, can't, you wouldn't imagine that this was a pleasant experience. And so this favored son is now in these circumstances He would have been in chains, and he comes down into Egypt, and there goes up, I know, presumably, on the auction blocks, and people begin to make a bid for him, and he's just thinking, like, is all this really happening? Is this really really what my life has become? Is how I'm going to be bought by somebody? I'm going to be put into their service, and indeed he was. He was bought by Potiphar, who was connected with the Pharaoh and was a military man. He was one that was... Um, over the captain of the guard, and he brings Joseph into his house. But the Lord shows favor to Joseph in these difficult circumstances. In verse 2, we read, the Lord was with him. In verse 3, we read, Potiphar knew that the Lord was with him. And then in verse 5, it says, the Lord blessed uh, the house of Potiphar for the sake of Joseph. And if you notice, um, why are all of the letters capitalized in the name Lord. Well, the translators did us a favor. When they want you to know that in the original language it is referring to the covenant name of God, Yahweh, 
Jehovah, however you exactly pronounce it, there's still some bit of a mystery, but they would put it all in capitals for us. So you know this is referring to the covenant name of God, whereas at other times it is just maybe referring to um, the, a title like master, a lord. So this is a reference to the God that Joseph worshipped is actively working and moving. Now some may say, well, it seems like a little late for the blessing stuff. I mean, where was the blessing stuff when he was going to find his brothers and they were plotting the evil plot? Where was the Lord when he was being roughed up and thrown into the pit? Where was the Lord when he was being sold for 20 pieces of silver? Where was the Lord when he was on his way down? Why all of this? And you know, the Lord has his ways. The Lord works and moves in ways that are for his glory and for his honor. In no way should we think that God is the one that is committing this sin. It is his brothers that are sinning, they're committing sin against him, and they will be rebuked for it, and they will be held accountable for it. However, the Lord is going to work in the midst of those circumstances. And Joseph, you know, we don't read it right here, but we will read it later, that Joseph knew that the Lord was at work. He says to his brothers when they finally meet up, he says, you meant these things for evil, but the Lord meant it for good to save you. And look, here we are this day. The Lord is saving you. And it was because of his position that he was going to have eventually down in Egypt that he was able to provide for them and the family would not starve. The Lord's ways are higher than our ways. He uses difficulty to save a nation. We're reading about the difficulty. But it isn't just to save a nation. And saving the nation, it's saving you and me. Because it is through this family that Jesus will descend, and he went to the cross and hung on the cross for our sins that we might be saved from the consequences of our sins and be reunited with the Father. And so this is a salvation story. But as you begin to read it, it just sounds like bad luck, doesn't it? It just sounds like difficulty. But now the Lord's blessing him, and the Lord is showing favor and is giving him success because the Lord has a plan. God uses the challenges, and the difficulties of our life to be a blessing to other people. And that's what this story is about. But you know, that's not okay with some of us. <laughs> um, newsflash, if you're serving the Lord, you really don't have a say in it. But for some of us, that's like, well, I don't like that. that that's not acceptable. Why would he do that? I don't want to be used like that. Well, listen, let's remember our place. What is our place? Who are we in the kingdom of God? We are the servants of the Lord. We are the slaves of the Lord, of Master Jesus. And he says, if you want to follow me, it's going to be hard. You're going to have to take up your cross. You're going to have to deny yourself. We said, I'm all in. We want to follow you. They'll kill you. They'll hate you. We're still all in. And we follow the Lord. And now we become servants of the Lord for his purposes. 2 Corinthians Chapter 1, verses 3-5 through five, talks about some of those things the Lord does when we are in difficulty. It says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and God of all comfort, who comforts us in all our tribulations, that we may be able to comfort those who are in any trouble with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. 
For as the sufferings of Christ abound in us, so our consolation also abounds through Christ. The difficulties and the hardships you go through, the Lord will come and he will begin to minister you to you comfort and peace and consolation. And that begins to build up a storehouse of experience and love and comfort from the Lord in your life. And now when you run into somebody else who's going through difficulty and hardship, you can say, let me tell you how God has worked in similar circumstances. This is why fellowship is so important. This is why that public testimony we talked about last week is so important so people can hear how God has worked in your life and how he's working through your life to bring comfort into other people. We are the servants of the Lord. And Joseph stands out as an example of one who circumstances were used for the the benefit of other people. And so he's being faithful in affliction. How do we know he's being faithful in affliction? Because things wouldn't have been prospering if he wasn't faithful. Like, I'm not going to help this guy. Forget this guy. Why would I want to take the knowledge I have about, you know, the field and crops and animals and help him? Yeah, I mean, it, it, it's not in the text, but you can, you can almost hear a scenario playing out. It's not hard to imagine. Ah, oh, these Egyptians, who do they even know? Look how they feed their flocks. They, are, they don't have a clue. They could have such an abundance, but they don't even know. They don't even know how to take, they have such water, they don't even know how to really take care and, and, and utilize it properly. And he has all this wisdom and this knowledge, and is he using it or not using it? He's using it. Because the house of Potiphar is prospering. And so he's allowing his circumstances on a physical level to be used to actually even benefit the one who purchased him. And he stands as an example. Paul said this about the Old Testament. He says, these things, Joseph's story was written for our learning and our admonition. What's that? Be like them or don't be like them, depending on the story that you're reading about. In this case, you would want to be like him. It, you know, this wasn't written yet, but Colossians 3.22 seems to be like Joseph's you know, theme verse for his life. Bond servants, obey in all things your masters according to the flesh, not with thy service as men pleasers, but in sincerity of heart, fearing God. He does this in these circumstances. Are they just circumstances? Are they fair circumstances? No, they're not. They're unjust and they are unfair. But he was not going to be defined by his trial for the rest of his life. He was not going to be one. Although he was a victim, he was not going to live as a victim. Listen, there's a lot of you out there that probably have had things happen against you that are maybe criminal, they certainly are sinful, They are wrong, and it makes you a victim of that person's sin. All right, you're a victim, but you don't have to live a victim life. And Joseph wasn't going to allow that to happen. He wasn't going to allow the bitterness or the anger or the trauma of what he went through to define what his life was going to be like. He doesn't have a counselor. Hey, praise the Lord when you have a, a brother or a sister in the Lord that's willing to give you solid counsel. Somebody that can point you in the, in the way you are to walk. Who's his counselor? I mean, think of the family this guy was raised in. I mean, it's a nightmare of a family. And then he's beaten up and he's sold into slavery and now he's down here. Who's his counselor? 
the Lord is his counselor. And how much light does he have compared to us? I mean, he doesn't have an Old Testament. It's being written, all right? There's no Old Testament. Uh, how about, um, you know, uh, spiritual laws? There, no, there's no four spiritual laws. There's no Bible apps. There's nothing except the account that Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob have passed down to him and those very few experiences. And yet, his eyes are on the Lord. You know, we live in a time where, you know, a lot of people just, they live out that victim mentality. And, you know, it can be, it can be hard. I mean, maybe somebody's done you wrong inside your, your house. Maybe a, somebody in business has done you wrong. Maybe somebody has even, has even gone to the point of abusing you or raping you. And now we have all of these things that we begin to carry through this life. What do we do with them? Well, we turn them over to the Lord. We put them in the hands of the Lord. We ask Him to give us strength and to give us wisdom. We follow Scripture. We are more than conquerors. The Lord does not want you to live in a place of feeling and thinking of yourself as simply the victim of somebody's sinful act. Because our God is bigger than that. Now, I, I know this is hard to hear right now, but let me just state this again. We're not saying that the sinful act of the person was okay. What we're saying is they're not going to continue to dominate you the rest of your life. They had a moment in time, and you're going to come to the Lord today, and you're going to say, that's enough. I'm not going to live it any longer. I'm not going to be defined by it. I'm not going to decide what I can do or what I cannot do because of the sin of somebody against my life. I've got a Lord that is able and capable, and we see this in the story of Joseph. He's not going to live like that. He's not going to sit around in bitterness and despondency his days. He stands up and he begins to trust in the Lord, and he follows the Lord, and we see the beautiful thing that he does. So what is your attitude in your present circumstances? Is it one of bitterness? I'm not going to help these people. I'll never help these people. They don't give me what they're supposed to know. The Bible says if you have the power to do good in your hand, don't tell your neighbor to come back tomorrow. If you have the answer to be a blessing to somebody, don't withhold it. And Joseph, I mean, listen, if there's anybody that has the opportunity to say, I'm not going to tell you how to water your sheep and graze your sheep. Why would I do that? I'm not going to tell you how to account for your money and stuff. You guys have the most backwards accounting system I've ever seen. I'm not going to tell you how to work it out. And no, I'm not going to tell you what to do and how to plant and in and, and the field. I'll do what you tell me to do, and that's all I'm going to do. That was not Joseph, was it? Otherwise, we wouldn't read of all the blessings that were coming upon the house of Potiphar. Are you looking to be a blessing to those around you? Are you looking for God to work? Are you walking in bitterness? You know, things happen in our life. They're hard. They're painful. As we said, maybe even criminal. At times, things can take place. But in Christ Jesus, you know that your God is capable and he's able. You know that he condemns that unrighteousness. You don't need another person to tell you what was done wrong to you was wrong. Because God already has stood up and said that's wrong and that's sinful. The Lord is first in line to condemn the unrighteous acts of other people against you. That's good enough. Now, it's nice when we're supported. And that's good, but you don't have to have that. 
I mean, where would Joseph go to get support in these circumstances? I can't believe I'm a slave. Well, you can't believe you're a slave. We're all slaves here, buddy. I mean, th- there would have been a difficult, well, yeah, but I, was, I had favored status in my house. Uh, you can imagine how that would have gone over talking to all the other servants in Potiphar's house. Oh, really? Isn't that wonderful for you? He doesn't do this. He is looking to the Lord. We sang the song that said, break the unbreakable, move the unmovable. God can break those things that have defined you. Maybe you have allowed bitterness and despondency and a kind of that victim mentality that's never willing to get up from the harm that's done. Maybe that has dominated you and what needs to be broken is that. Yeah, but what they did is wrong. We, we got that. We know that. God has said it's wrong and sinful first. This is not saying it's okay. This is saying I'm not going to live under the power of what my brothers did to me in selling into slavery. I'm not going to do that. I'm going to get up and I am going to move forward. Here's something I want to talk to you about. You know, getting prayer from people for the trials that we are going through is not only a good thing, it's a commanded thing that we should get intercession But this is what we shouldn't get from people, their pity. Compassion, yes. Encouragement, yes. Wisdom, yes. Instruction, yes. Prayers, yes. Pity, no. Why not pity? Because pity steals the praise of God in your life. The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not, what? Want. When we begin to talk about the pitiful circumstances and we begin to seek the the, the sorrow of others for what we're going through, we begin to diminish the work of God in our life. I'll give you a story. Some of you have heard this before, but there's so many of you that are are new. I get to go through all these old stories again. So here you go. And when Tyler, my oldest, uh, was in third grade, um, we had just bought all the kids brand new shoes. And we had gone up into the mountains, and we were having a breakfast up there. And afterwards, um, uh, Tyler and Whitney, uh, the oldest, they wanted to go and play down by the creek. And I said, fine, but do not get your new shoes wet. Because you know what it's like when your kids are young and small. It's like you scrape every penny together to get those things. And if they, you know, if they get them wet, then I'm just going to live with stinky shoes until I can get more money you know, to, to get these things. And so, like, don't get them wet. Okay. Don't get them. I won't. So they go down there to play. We're up there eating, finishing up with our, our youngest and Megan. Um, we ended up going down there, and they come running up to us. And as they're coming running up to us, I can see all those little shoe bubbles coming out of the shoes. And I can hear them squishing. I'm like, Tyler, I told you not to get your shoes wet, not to get in the creek. He goes, I didn't get in the creek. I got on the rocks in the creek, and I fell off. I'm like, that's getting in the creek. So then I had one of those dad moments, and I said, you're going to buy your next pair of shoes. He's in third grade. (laughs) So in my mind, though, it made perfect sense. What was going to happen was I was going to give you a series of chores that were very doable on your behalf, and over time you would save up enough money in this glass jar that you could watch accumulate with money, and then we're going to take that and you're going to buy your shoes, and you would learn the lesson of working. And Yeah, that never happened. Can any dads relate to these like, great ideas you have? It's like, yeah, we're going to do this. And you're like, yeah, that never happened. So it comes time for a parent-teacher conference over there at Sandusky Elementary. Mrs. Gilmore, third grade, and we go in, and she has like this 
paper inside this folder. Everything is on the, the desk. And I was like, there's one paper in the folder. So we're all done. She goes, I just have one, one last question for you. And so she hands me this paper where Tyler had drew a picture at the top, you know him, and a little two or three sentences about, you know, we went to the mountains, I fell in the creek, my dad said I have to buy my own shoes now. <laughs> and, and so, I mean, it was a very simple paper to read, but it, as she handed it to me, I was like, oh my gosh, she thinks I'm a terrible dad, she thinks I'm not taking care of my kids. He's got this sob story by this third grader, you know, and I'm looking bad now. And I'm reading it. I'm like, you think I was reading a 10-page paper trying to, f I'm trying to come up with an answer. I mean, I can read it. I know what happened, but I just don't, I'm like, I'm just going to sound defensive no matter what I say. And so, yeah, I told the story and I sounded defensive. It just it didn't, you know, I walked out of there and Rebecca's laughing. She goes, oh, you're going to make him buy his own shoes, you know. And, and so, you know, she knew we were good parents. But how did it make me feel in the moment? Besides being embarrassed, it made me feel like I was a dad that didn't provide for my children. And when we go and we get the pity of people, it makes us sound like kids whose dad doesn't take care of them. That circumstances that got a little bigger than the sovereign God of the universe. God's capable. There's another time in my life when, um, uh, you know, it was not far after that that, we were young as a church, and um, we went into a building project, very small building project. But at the end of it, we, um, we didn't have enough, and I had to go get a job. And so I uh, started delivering papers. I was known affectionately as Pastor Troy, the paper boy. And um, <laughs> so I was delivering these, these papers, and, uh, and we had been in church for a couple of years at that point. And so we began to... I, I was. First night all by myself on the route, delivering the papers, and I got to the end of it, and I probably was complaining a little bit, and the Lord's like, I don't want to hear it. I don't want to hear complaints. And so clearly, I can still remember exactly where I was in Lynchburg, where, where I was and what house I was throwing the paper to, and the Lord said, I don't want to ever hear you complain or get people to feel sorry for you. This is my provision in your life. Don't seek anyone's pity. And don't let them pity you. And we can so easily slide over into that place where we're like, now listen, compassion, prayer, wisdom, encouragement, all of the above. Go get them and get as much as you can. Pity? Don't get the pity. Because it puts the Lord in a light, again, like he's not a good provider. I mean, God could have provided for you know, the, the Warner family and Calvary Chapel Lynchburg back then if he wanted to in a different way. But that was his provision. And so for me to begin to whine and complain, man, it's terrible. You should see what it's like to deliver papers. It's the worst thing ever. And I could have painted the whole story and got it. Oh, poor Pastor Troy has to deliver papers. And this is terrible. Why is it terrible? Why is it terrible that I had to deliver papers? The answer is that it wasn't terrible. That's how God wanted to provide for me. And if that's the way God wanted to provide for me, then that's a, a place for me to thank the Lord for that in my life. So we can very easily, when we have unfortunate or even sinful circumstances come our way, we can begin to whine and we can begin to complain and we can begin to act like God is not on the throne and we've got to buy our own tennis shoes. And the answer is God is taking care of you. And so trust in him.
Look at verses 7 through 18, upright in affliction. And it came to pass after these things that his master's wife cast longing eyes on Joseph, and she said, Lie with me. But he refused and said to his master's wife, Look, my master does not know what is with me in the house, and he has committed all that he has to my hand. There is no one greater in this house than I, nor has he kept back anything from me but you, because you're his wife. How then can I do this great wickedness and sin against God? So it was, as she spoke to Joseph day by day, that he did not heed her to lie with her or to be with her. But it happened about this time when Joseph went into the house to do his work, and none of the men of the house was inside, that she caught him by the garment, saying, Lie with me. But she left his garment in her hand and fled and ran outside. And so it was, when she saw that he had left his garment in her hand and fled outside, that she called to the men of her house and spoke to them, saying, See, he has brought into us a Hebrew to mock us. He came in to lie with me, and I cried out with a loud voice. And it happened when he heard that I lifted my voice and cried out that he left his garment with me and fled and went outside. And it's just interesting, make of what you will, but you got a garment issue again going on here. Verse 17, Then she spoke to him with words like these, saying, The Hebrew servant who you brought us came in to me to mock me. So what happened is I lifted my voice and cried out that he left his garment with me and fled outside. He's upright in affliction. He's not bitter at God. He's not saying, you know, you put me down in this place. These people are immoral. They're ungodly. They live like this. I mean, this is the house that I'm in. Well, if that's the way you want it, then I guess I'll go ahead and live like it. He doesn't take on a fatalistic mentality that says, all is lost. I've been sold into slavery. I'm going to live here. I'm going to die here the rest of my life. What's the, what's the point of even trying to, to do the right thing? Because every time I do the right thing, it seems like something bad happens to me. So I quit. I forget it. Sure, I'll lie with you. But he doesn't do that. He has faith in the Lord still. There are five things that stand out. I want to go through them quickly, and I want the last one I want to spend a little more time on. But number one in verse 8, when he's confronted with temptation, he stands by thinking of others. What is the consequences going to be if I sin with this woman? This man has shown me kindness, and he's shown honor towards me. I'm going to break this relationship. I'm going to divide a marriage. Then he thought in terms of holiness. It doesn't matter what the culture is. It doesn't matter what the norm was with Mrs. Potiphar. I mean, you get the feeling she had and she did whatever she wanted. I'm sure Joseph was not her first. That's speculation, but just reading it, it sounds like she knew the routine and she didn't get the way she wanted. But he wasn't allowing the culture that he was around to determine how he's going to live. He knew what the righteous standard of God was. It was written upon his heart. It was well known. And so he did it. You know, we, we can get a, a decision in our mind. Here's, here's the world, and here I am. And I am never going to get close to the world. I'm always going to stay away from the world. But the problem is, the world is going like this. And if you maintain that same distance from the world that you had 10 years ago, you're in trouble, and I'm in trouble. 
because it's going crazy and it's falling off of the edge. And so rather than keeping this much distance, it's like there is greater and greater distance between us and our belief and who we are in the Word of God with every passing day. We don't try to keep the same distance because the world is growing worse and worse. It's growing darker and darker. We maintain the decisions that we made. Have you, have you compromised over the years and say, well, I would have never done that, but I mean, look at the world now and no comparison to that, that's no big deal. It is a big deal because we don't want to do a wicked thing and that's what he called it. This is a wicked thing. The world calls it an affair. Sounds like fun. The Lord calls it a wicked thing when we commit sexual sin. In verse, the end of verse 9, he's thinking about God. He goes, how can I do this wicked thing and sin against God? I, I, I can't do this. Now again, such little light that he had, and yet he knew about faithfulness to the Lord. And here we are, the people of God, who has the spirit of the living God dwelling in, in us. He comes upon us in power. He gives us gifts. We have the Old Testament. We have the New Testament. We have each other. We have 2,000 years of church history that says, walk like this. We have been given so much. If Joseph can stand righteously in his day, then certainly we, who are the temple of the living God, can stand in righteousness. And then he runs from sin, point number four. He says, I'm not going to stick around. 2 Timothy 2.22 says, Flee also youthful lust, but pursue righteousness, faith, love, peace, and those who call on the Lord out of a pure heart. There are times where you just got to put distance between you and what's going on. Well, I just want to test out my new found, you know, resolve. Don't do that. Don't get close to see if you can say, I think I can say no now. No, don't do that. Keep a, a healthy and safe distance away. Run away from that. Don't try and cozy up next to it. And so he runs out of the room. And so she brings false accusation against him. The one thing that is not specifically stated in this passage, but I believe it to be so true, uh, a point that I first heard Pastor Damian Kyle make, and that is, Joseph was a man that rehearsed righteousness. Write that down. I need to rehearse, I need to rehearse righteousness. What does that mean? Well, if she's coming after him day by day and he's counted the stakes and what the harm is going to come to other people and what it will be against God and what God's righteous standard is, he has already determined in his mind, I will never lie with that woman. And you can imagine him in his prayer time speaking to the Lord and asking for strength and asking for it, that he was saying, if, that, if she ever grabs me when I am alone in the house. I'm just going to have to run out of that house. I'm just going to have to leave behind. It doesn't matter what's going on. I cannot stay in that circumstance. I cannot stay in that situation. I will say no. I'm going to say, how could I do this great wickedness? Your husband has put everything under my charge. He's shown so much kindness and care. How could I sin against him? You're a married woman. It will never happen. That, that line was rehearsed. He knew what he was going to say before that moment came because he knew the temptation. And we need to learn to rehearse the right thing, the righteous thing to do. And some of you, you know exactly what this means because you have a person at work or there's somebody online or it's a neighbor or whatever and they're trying to lure you in. 
They're trying to call you into an ungodly business practice. Whatever it might be, you need to rehearse the righteous thing to do. You need to be ready to say, I cannot do that. I will never do that. Because that's an unrighteous thing. That's a wicked thing to take somebody's money and to rip them off and to misrepresent who we are or what we can provide. I will never do that. I'll never take part in that. Because I can't sin against God. I can't sin against them. It's an unrighteous thing to do. And maybe you need to run from that business deal. you got to rehearse in your mind what you're going to say and what you're going to do. But on the other side, there's that whole lust thing that can begin to happen in our mind. And it's the rehearsing of unrighteousness. Wow, you know, that's a pretty lady at work. If she ever was to say, you look good today, I think I would say... I would say, you know what, well, you, I think you're the, probably the best-looking lady I've ever seen. And then she might say, really? Well, maybe we ought to get together and talk about it. And then I would say, and then you have a whole wicked, unrighteous plan that you're playing out in your mind, which is sinful. It's called lust, but it's, it's rehearsing unrighteousness. And then, then the day comes where she says it. And the next thing you know, you're saying Something you thought you would never say, but yet you've rehearsed it. So we need, to de- we need to stand up and we need to be people like, I'm not going down that path. I am not going to walk that path. I am going to live much differently. I remember the day when, and I had, when I had heard this and I had heard a couple of other similar teachings about this, I thought, if I'm ever propositioned by a woman, I will say this, I will say this, and I will say this. I said, if I'm ever, what I said was, if I'm ever propositioned, I will say, I am a follower of Jesus Christ, and I will not sin against him. I am happily married, and there is no way I'll be unfaithful to my wife, and you need to get your life right with the Lord. That, that was my plan. That was my, that was my line, and, it, and the, it happened. And, of course, she turned and walked in in disgust and said a few words. But you know what? I didn't have to think about what to say. I had already said it a hundred times in my mind, how I would respond to that situation. And so we live in a fallen world, and there are fallen people all around us. And even though we are redeemed, that old man, that old woman can have those old desires come back up, and we need to know how we're going to respond. And Joseph stands as such a great example for us on how to be, even in the midst of affliction, how to still be holy and how to be righteous. Because what the enemy loves to do is in the midst of affliction and hardship to say, just do it. I mean, if God cared for you, you wouldn't be in these circumstances anymore. Why are you trying to be faithful to him? He wasn't faithful to you. And the father of lies is whispering. Lastly, we wrap it up quickly. Verses 19 through 23. More affliction, but still faithful. So it was when his master heard the words which his wife spoke to him, saying, Your servant did to me after this manner, that his anger was aroused. Then Joseph's master took him and put him into the prison, a place where the king's prisoners were confined, and he was there in prison. But the Lord was with Joseph and showed him mercy, and he gave him favor in the sight of the keeper of the prison. And the keeper of the prison committed to Joseph's hand all the prisoners who were in the prison. Whatever they did there, it was his doing. The keeper of the prison did not look into anything that was under Joseph's authority because the Lord was with him and whatever he did, the Lord made it prosper. Again, 
more unfortunate circumstances because of the sinful actions of people. God condemns it. And God condemns the sinful actions that have come against you. Don't get mad at him. I mean, he hung on the cross to be able to provide salvation for you. He has said that one day he will speak against the unrighteous acts. Vengeance is mine, says the Lord. I will repay. There may be nobody else on this earth who agrees that you were done wrong by, but the Lord knows the truth. Don't get mad at him. That is the absolutely last person you should be mad at. What we should be saying is, thank you, Lord, that you know the truth. You know and you care and you're willing to show compassion. And so, Lord, I surrender myself. I'm not going to let these things define me. I will be used by you in these circumstances. Lord, set me free. And I believe the Lord wants to set some of you free today from walking under the the heavy cloud of those circumstances and begin to look to God to bless you and make you successful and to be present in your life. And you may have all kinds of people that are saying, poor you, poor you, poor you. Enough of that. It's time to say, yes, these are our unfortunate circumstances, but my God is able, and he's going to work, and he's going to move, and I am not going to live defined by the sins of other people against me for the rest of my life. It's going to take some courage to do it, but you know it's the right thing to do. Deliverance from that. Because if you walk in bitterness the rest of your life, it will be there. And you know what happens with bitterness? It never lets you forget. And it keeps alive the pain and the hurt that happened in that one moment. Let it go. Trust the Lord. Commit it to his hands. Psalm 34 1 says, I bless the Lord at all times. All times. Not when it's going good. Nobody needs to tell us to bless the Lord when it's going good, it's in the bad times. His praise shall continually be in my mouth. And Lord, you are worthy of that praise continually being in our mouth. You are worthy, Lord. And I know, Lord, as certain as we are gathered in this room, there are those that have deep hurts and pains from the things they've experienced, probably by the people that are closest to them, probably by the people that they trusted the most. Lord, the pain is real, the hurt is real. The feelings of bitterness are real. But Lord, you see and you know. So Lord, we ask that you would break the unbreakable. You would move the immovable. That Lord, you would show up in these brothers' and sisters' lives.